I'm Chris Nessie, host of Behind the Mic, Voices of the EPN, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with N.L. Holmes. That's right. She's back on the show and she's got a new book. Uh, She's been a nun, antiques dealer, archaeologist, university professor, and is now a fantastic novelist with characters from ancient times. Today we're focused on Egyptian society and her latest book series called Hani's Daughter Mysteries, book number one, which is called Flowers of Evil. What an awesome read. What an awesome conversation. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. And by the way, before you go, it'd be so cool if you went to my website, stephenmiletto.com slash reviews and left review could you do that for me say a few nice words and uh, maybe five stars <laughs> thanks so much you are awesome enjoy the show it's the education podcast your favorite show with lots of groovy guests and they share what they know so crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with dr steve teaching learning leading k-12 teaching learning leading k-12 teaching learning leading K-12, ah, ah, with Dot Stimoletto. N.L. Holmes is a prolific novelist embarking on another significant career phase. Prior to taking up the power of writing and using this pen name, she was an accomplished archaeologist and teacher for 25 years. Early in her career, she served as a nun for two decades. In between, she was an artist and antiques dealer. Yes, she has lived an interesting life, and the sum of her experiences informs and inspires her writings today. Holmes, who earned her doctorate in classical and Near Eastern archaeology studies from Bryn Mawr College, despite an offer to attend Princeton, has excavated in Greece and Israel and taught ancient history and humanities at Stockton University in New Jersey and University of South Florida for many years. She also did archaeological artwork for excavations from Lebanon. With 11 published novels, Holmes is the creator of the Lord Hani Mysteries. The inspiration for her Bronze Age novels came with an assignment she gave to her students one day. And it goes like this. Here are the only documents we have telling us about royal divorce in Ugarit in the 13th century. How much can we say about what happened? She notes, it quickly became apparent that almost anything we might come up with was as much fiction as historiography. She also penned the Empire at Twilight series, historical fiction set in the 13th century CB during the Hittite Empire and Hani's Daughter Mysteries, a spinoff historical fiction series. Born and raised in Fort Worth, Texas, she attended the University of Texas in the honors program, but dropped out midway to enter into the antiques business. Two years later, she entered the Discal Carmelite uh, Convent in Texas, and she left the convent 20 years later and returned to school to get her B.A. in classical and Near Eastern archaeology. Holmes resides with her husband, three cats, and a dog. They split their time between Tampa, Florida, and northern France, where she gardens, weaves, and plays the violin. They have an adult son, and uh, for more information, please consult www.nlhomes.com, and we'll have more information about that sort of stuff where you can contact her in my show notes. More to come there. Um, Welcome back. It's great to have you on the show, and uh, say hi to everybody, NL. Hi. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm I'm glad you're back, and... uh, um, we're gonna, yeah, you know, we're gonna focus on your one of your latest books uh, called Flowers of Evil, and so here's a little bit for the audience about that. Uh, uh, when two young women in ancient Egypt open a medical dispensary, they they don't expect their first patient to be a dying florist of of Amun, whose last words are totally mysterious. It's Neferet and Benareb's nature to want to appease the the baw of the murder victim by 
finding his killer, and their teenage apprentice is a born detective. But between the skepticism of their own families and the malice of a rival healer, they find out the simple desire to do the right thing gets them into more trouble than they could have imagined. Today we're focused on our book, Flowers of Evil, Hani's Daughter Mystery Series, Book One. Um, so this is really cool. I mean, we've talked about a whole bunch of different books. You've got all kinds of neat stuff going on. And did you, I got to, I got to ask this because this is an idea that comes to mind is, did you ever think that uh, a long time ago that you would be writing novels? Not, uh, not really. I didn't at any point set out thinking I'm going to be a writer, but on the other hand, it wasn't far-fetched because I grew up in a family where people wrote. My father wrote short stories for Boy's Life and stuff like that. My One of my aunts was a book editor for the local paper, so there was nothing odd about the idea. And my cousin and I both, as kids, we would, for entertainment, we would sit down and write a novel, you know, sometimes even finished one. <laughs> so nice. it was not off the wall over where I came from. That's so cool. So what inspired you to to pin several historical fiction series. I mean, they're in the 14th and 13th centuries Egypt. I mean, what, what just made you say, hey, uh, this is, there's a lot to pull from this? Well, I, it was teaching history. And uh, it, it's, there were so many things that we knew so little about that were almost cinematic in their, you know, their interest. And, and yet there were so many gaps in our actual knowledge. It occurred to me, even as I was teaching, that this really needs you know, someone to come along and do fiction to fill in the gaps and explain the choices people were making and stuff. So it seemed like a pretty natural step once I retired from the classroom to set my hand to that side of the that's a, pile. That's so cool because one of the things I can imagine is, you know, if you're te- when you're teaching at uh, universities and such and, and doing the archaeological digs that you're surrounded by um, nonfiction sorts of um, focus yeah. and, and those types of whether articles or books or things like that. And so I, was it really, I mean, how much of a shift there happens? I, well, surprising an amount of shifting between scholarly nonfiction and or writing novels. I mean, in the, when you're doing scholarly articles and things, you completely excise yourself and any kind of authorial voice you know, it just, you want to be totally invisible and just get the facts down as clearly as possible. But there is style in literary writing and it's, uh, it's very different. You kind of have to find your, your path and it, it takes a little while, I have to say. It, it, I can imagine as, as well as, you know, it's, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I really appreciate historical fiction, especially because it brings attention to eras that uh, may not get much otherwise and uh, uh but at the same time i th- I, I would think that uh, you kind of have to uh, um remind people that uh, some of it you know where the where the reality and uh, the lines are crossed with with that and what doesn't happen so what can you talk a little bit about the what writing like this historical fiction can do to help uh, you know people gain a, an appreciation of history well even when i was teaching my objective was to convince people that those kings and what have you in the past that that made decisions that might seem incomprehensible to us today were in fact human beings just like us and they had the same kind of pressures on them and they had the same limited uh, quiver of 
emotional arrows they could shoot back at things. So, you know, it's it becomes much more comprehensible than just trying to memorize a bunch of dates and battles and stuff like that. And I think you can't really grasp the the movement, the big movements of history without understanding the human dimension of them, which all too often is not taught in the classroom. So I think by reading a, a well-researched historical novel with a reliable author, you do get a much better picture of not only what daily life was like, but how people functioned in, in their world. And uh, keeping in mind that although they might wear different clothes and speak a different language and have a different worldview, they were exactly like us, and they, they felt just the same way about things. So uh, I think that's the first step even to achieving academic historical knowledge. Yeah, you know, one of the things that's always fascinating um, and fascinating to me is that, you know, when you when you talk about ancient history, there's there's so many, you know, possibilities of, you know, making the wrong guess, <laughs> wrong educated guess, yeah. and getting things wrong. And I, you know, and you have this neat perspective that you, you know, you are a an archaeologist as well. And so, uh, can you talk about kind of, you know, comparing, you know, not comparing, but the the, the working together in those types of mindsets where and how it helps you try and paint an accurate picture, I guess, is my point where I was going. Well, well, certainly, I mean, the sort of general awareness of the period and base, having done basic research just for the classroom helps. But in, in a sense, there is, there's both interplay between the two sides of the brain that are pulled together here and, and a kind of tension. And that's actually the reason why I, I write novels under a pen name. I, even in my own mind, I want to keep separate the historiographer and the fiction writer because I don't make the same choices as a fiction writer that I would if I were writing, you know, a, a history book. So that being said, then certainly uh, the first thing that's present as an archaeologist is the interest, the, the deep sort of visceral interest that I, for whatever reason, have had ever since I was a child in life in the past. And the people of the past. Um, so I think they're both symptoms of the same disease, if you want to put it that way. I got you. Uh, but then, you know, just the the knowledge of how to go about research and where to look for for factoids and things like that that has certainly come in handy. That's awesome. They, uh, you know, one of the um, we've talked about several of your books in the past, and uh, it's cool to see them move forward and grow. And you've created a, a new series. It's kind of like not kind of, it's a spinoff of uh, one of your other programs. And it's, and so the first book is called Flowers of Evil, uh, and it's Hani's D- Daughter Mystery Series. Uh, could you do a brief overview of who Hani was and some thoughts about what his family's life um, would be like before we go further? Sure. Uh, Hani was a, a real historical personage. He was a diplomat in uh, the 14th century under kings Amenhotep III and Akhenaten, and probably afterwards too, who, whom we encounter in the Amarna letters, which was a, a, a happily preserved bit of uh, diplomatic correspondence from the reign of Akhenaten. Uh, and Hani occurs in, in numerous settings there, uh, sent off on various missions. His name is mentioned. People talk about him um, and say, you know, Everybody's happy when Hani comes. That's that's one of the statements that I've used. Uh, 
So we don't really know any facts about him except his father's name. But judging from the little we see people talking about him, seeing the kind of missions of trust that he was sent on, you start to get a picture forming of the kind of man he might have been. And that's that's where this whole family began uh, with Hani and his historical missions. So he has a whole series. I wrote a six-book series about his adventures. And uh, in the course of these adventures, his family plays a large part because the Egyptians were a very family-oriented society. So um, his youngest daughter, who is seven in the first of the Hani books, is a grown woman by the time the books end. And it's it's she, Neferet, who becomes the protagonist of this spinoff series. Uh, we've seen her grow up. We've We've gotten a good sense of her personality. We've seen her choose to study medicine which was not impossible for a woman in those days, although it was exceptional. But she's an exceptional kind of gal. She's just countercultural enough, I think, to uh, draw modern readers in and, and kind of make a social commentary on life as she would have experienced it. So now she's got her own series. Very cool. That's a, that, that's a neat uh, direction to go there. And, I, you know, one of the... Yeah, you know, the the title of your book is Flowers of Evil, and so uh, what a great title, by the way. So, so if nothing else, right there, you could you could go, okay, that's that's going to drag me in also to 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 take a look and see what you're talking about. Uh, good, good. So let's let's talk about Flowers of Evil. I mean, what's happening, and uh, talk a little bit about your main character and what she, what she's all about. Well, Neferet is the daughter of Hani, so she has seen her father solving mysteries all her life, essentially. Uh, she is a, a physician by profession, and uh, her her life partner, or crypto life partner, I might say, is uh, Benner Ebb, who's also a, a physician. And the two of them, as the countercultural girls they are, have set up a dispensary for the working class. And um, but they're having trouble getting patients. No one seems to be willing to come to them. Uh, finally, she figures out that. She has a rival in the neighborhood who is spreading lies about them and trying to keep people away. So this is a kind of subplot. Uh, in the meantime, her first patient is a man who has brought um, mortally stabbed to their doorway one morning, and he dies after a few minutes. And his last word is rabbit. And they can't figure out what that means or if it has importance or not. Uh, so with her father's tradition of, of curiosity. She sets out to find out who this man was, why he was killed, uh, and because they believe in in finding out who done it, uh, both to satisfy their own curiosity and to appease his soul, uh, they set out to to solve the mystery and thereby hangs the tale. <laughs> I love this. this. You know, one of the things that uh, um, it it wants me to ask is: so, in that in that society in that time, um, if you know, if you were doing something near to well and and possibly commit a murder or something like this, how did they did they have like a a police structure or a, or some sort of um, enforcement agency that would help them? Uh, um, I, I should have used a better word than agency, but some sort of 
a, an internal organization that would then would be in charge of making determination or is it, you know, we're hauling you in front of the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh is going to make the decision? Well, they had a rather, rather uh, ornately structured judicial system, actually. They did have what we would call policemen, uh, municipal police, which were called the Medje after a Nubian tribe of archers uh, who at least originally provided a lot of these policemen. And in addition to that, of course, there was the army, depending on the kind of crime. Uh, but these people would investigate and apprehend criminals. And then there were judges. Uh, any magistrate of a certain level could could sit as a judge. And even, uh, even women occasionally would, for example, a village mayor might be a woman, and she would sit on judgment then with her, her village council. So uh, you were judged by your peers, essentially. There were no professional lawyers, but you yourself or someone you appoint could uh, make the case for you in public, and then the judge would consider, or the, the, the jury, as it were, the council. Ultimately, the king was the, the final judge. You could appeal to the king any case, though I doubt if many people did. Probably they were more afraid of him than of their local <laughs> judge. Right. But, um, but technically, he was, you know, where the buck stopped. So, you know, they had pretty much every element that we do. They had judge and jury. They had court of appeals. It was uh, the, for most of Egypt's history, the, sort of the price you would pay for a crime would be a fine. But in the New Kingdom, I guess through contact with other cultures who were more bloodthirsty, they they became uh, more and more physical punishments, like being having your feet beaten or your nose or ears cut off. Or of course, death was a possibility too. But sometimes it just depended on the will of your victim's family. Say you kill a person. It kind of depended on whether the victim's family was willing to exercise mercy or not, how much you would suffer. So a lot of it was subjective. Uh, there weren't, you know, definite punishments allotted in many cases. Uh, we kind of get into more of this judicial system in the second book in this series, uh, Web of the Evil. But that's that's another story. Nice. I appreciate you explain that because it's something that I think about, you know, as I'm reading your, your words and you start thinking about what was the, you know, what was that, uh, bef you know, before I started imagining, you know, like Starsky and Hutch running around or boy, that's an outdated reference, but, you know, <laughs> um, uh, you know, and it's, and it's, uh, uh, you know, it makes you wonder what that society is like. So can you help me with time frames here just a little bit? Like, you know, currently in the U S there's, there's uh King Tut's, um, stuff is wandering around the yeah the US and things like this. Can you put it in time frames with with some of these names that we might know? What what time frame are we talking about here? And where is Well, it? Uh, actually the first of the Neferit books takes place in the first year of Tutankhamun's reign. So this is probably about 2 years after the death of Akhenaten. Uh we think that his wife has been on the throne for that period of time. That is Nefertiti. And uh, Tut, who's just a boy, has come to the throne now. And uh, his a friend, various friends of Hani's family are in positions of authority. For example, the viziers and uh, the treasurer. In fact, uh, 
Neferet is married to the treasurer, a man named Maya, or he goes by that name. Uh, I have conflated the historical Maya with another historical figure named Thomas because Maya is a is a nickname for Thomas. So he's served in various other capacities and other reigns, but now he's the treasurer. So a very important man. Very cool. I appreciate you explaining that because I, you know, it's uh, um, I've been in different places over the last couple of months and uh, I've noticed the on its way coming soon. And uh, it, 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 oh, well worth saying. Very much so. I, I've had the good yeah, fortune. Yeah, they say that uh, the the content of Tut's tomb, and he was just a a teenage king of very little importance, was the equivalent of about a thousand years of an ordinary workman's salary. Wow. And I know that, you know, one of the things that goes with this is unfortunately over time, I'm, I'm sure, uh, uh, how to say this, ne'er-do-wells or people who are, knew what was buried with the pharaohs and so forth like that, um, you know, it hurts historical, you know, what, what survives historical uh, um, over the years and stuff like this. And in wars and things like this, you know, the, the different battles that took place that were different uh, things going on up above above ground uh you know it's and it, to see what they have from tut's tomb is is pretty amazing even for a um maybe not so significant ruler of the era but well it is amazing for one thing it showcases the fabulous craftsmanship that they they managed with very simple simple tools but also i mean it's that it survived is is truly awesome because tomb robbing began almost as soon as people were in the ground. Wow. It's, um, it was, although they, you know, put curses on anybody who breached their tomb and what have you, it didn't stop people. That's pretty, it, you know, it's just, it's, it, it just, it, it's amazing to think about how long this would have to escape tomb robber, robbers. I mean, yeah. to be able to be out there. So good stuff. I, you know, uh, one of the things that happens in your, your story is you have to create intrigue. You have to make the feeling that they want to know more. The reader wants to know what's going to happen next. And, you know, is is this going to happen or is that going to happen? Can you talk a little bit about trying to make the story engaging, what you do and what you, you try and uh, – um, are there any devices that you like to use that, that help you do that? Well, as you know, it's funny. Recently I wrote a book for the uh, – Kindle Vela series. I don't know if you're aware of that. It's it's a serial format where you have these 1,500 word episodes. Cool. And I found myself facing having to have something happen every 1,500 words in order to keep drawing people along into the next episode. And you know that made me think very hard about what goes into keeping a novel rolling at a, an interesting pace. Uh, I don't write knock-down, drag-out thriller adventures and things like that, so it's it's not like you have cars blowing up every every chapter, but something has to happen, and it's either a discovery uh, or, you know, a crime, or some family drama, and that's why I've, I found it uh, useful to keep the pot boiling, so to speak, to have kind of a parallel family saga going along with the mystery. Um, and then, of course, you have the, the trick of the red herring. 
because Neferet and her friends are amateurs, and Neferet is is particularly uh, quick to jump to judgment, they get on the wrong trail a lot and have to correct themselves, thanks to the you know the discovery of more uh, evidence. So that kind of helps keep the ball rolling along, I think. Oh, most definitely. This is you know it's <laughs> it's one of the things that uh, um, I like the fact that. Uh, you know, characters can be flawed to the point that it, uh, you know, you, you know, one of the things, if you ever seen a movie that's a, uh, has some sort of jump scares or scary or something like this, you, you might, I, I don't know if you ever attended an audience where someone yells out, don't leave the door open or something like that, you know? <laughs> so, you know, so you think about uh, the different things that, and I gotta, I gotta go back to something you just said, because I had heard about that, uh, um, the requirements of that, um, ser- those types of series, if you participate in it, and uh, that has to be challenging to, to to be thinking about every fifteen hundred words. That all right, what's going to happen next? When I'm going to leave off here? And uh, yeah, it's it really is hard, and you don't want it just to become episodic. You want it to have an overarching plot. So it was challenging, but I think it uh, probably improved my writing just as an exercise. That's cool because I can imagine it makes you think about it. Then so where. You know, is there something here that's going to happen that's going to keep me, you know, make my readers go something? I don't necessarily, does it need to be a boulder rolling down a, a cliff or something like this? But uh, I, I I like that because it's, it's cool that it, you know, it makes you think about what, what you do have happening, where, what's going on, yeah. if uh, they're being engaged. Which, going back to something I said a minute ago, I really like the idea of having, uh, you know, characters who there's some flaws there, which can send him off on a wild goose chase. So I like that. Yeah, she's uh, she's lovable, but definitely hasty. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. And stubborn. <laughs> Even nicer, because that, that's, I, I think I have one of those characteristics in me, because I, I don't like to ask for directions, so I just keep going. You know, it's like. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're a, you're a nephrid, clearly. <laughs> nice. Uh, early in Flowers of Evil, you describe a scene like this. So I'm going to read this scene. They wheeled left at the corner as instructed and set off in the direction of the river. Their bare feet padded in unison down the packed earth street, which was almost empty of passerby at this hour. But the crowd began to grow as they neared the royal magazines, mostly porters and men driving donkeys and and ox carts loaded with supplies for the storehouses. They saw the magazines to their right, one after another, long, low, mud-brick buildings with vaulted roofs and a steady stream of porters entering sacks and jars on their shoulders." So tell me what you're sharing about the times, because I love this, because you get some good image, imagery in thinking about um, what, this, what this world looks like. So can you talk about that? Well, I, I think um, my purpose throughout is to kind of give the flavor of what life looked like and smells like and felt like to, to people of those days. Uh, the fact that Nefret is, in fact, a very rich woman and chooses to go barefoot, like, you know, working class people or peasants is significant of her her temperament. Um, and it also shows how most people would have lived. The fact that uh, the king's wealth is such that a whole sort of industry exists around stocking his palace storehouses is another fact. I mean, it's a very hierarchical society. And even though there was this certain layer of almost democracy at the local level, as I mentioned. Uh, the, the king is just worlds above everybody else in, in wealth and in power. 
I think that's hinted at here. Um, a, a sense of the architecture. We don't think of, of vaulted roofs in Egyptian architecture, and yet they did have, have them for these long, low sort of uh, things that look like sausage rolls, <laughs> places to store vast amounts of food stuff, and, and the fact that everything was transported with the simplest kind of vehicle or uh, even more commonly on the backs of humans. And, and that's something that it's almost hard to absorb because they were such sophisticated builders. And if you think about the pyramids being built with manpower almost exclusively, it, it's just, I mean, just you're aghast with, with admiration at these people. Unemployment was not a problem in those days. <laughs> Very much so. I, you know, I, it just amazes me. I, I think about what they were able to accomplish, and and granted, it was all the backs of of people. And uh, but yeah. uh, to to be able to to construct something that you know without interference from humankind, because <laughs> there's some of that over time, thanks to wars and such. But uh, it's amazing how it. I mean, it has survived. You know, this yeah. the, these relics and. Um, which gives you a feel for it. I, I got to say this, by the way, um, the whole thought about walking around barefoot, I, I can barely walk from my back door to the, to the, to the part of the driveway to throw something in the trash can. I can't imagine what it would be like walking around on the streets. <laughs> barefoot. Uh, well, I can't either, but you know, it's interesting. My husband is Greek. He was born and raised in a village in Northern Greece. And he said the old women, when he was a child, the old women went around barefooted all the time and their feet were like hooves. They were so tough. So I think you just develop the callus that you need. Nice. I, I can imagine so. I'm a long way from that. <laughs> I got to get that, put, a, put that shoe on. <laughs> We're softened, softened up these days. <laughs> it's very much so. The, uh, all right. So we talked a little bit about this. I mean, you know, if, if murder happens, what, what typically, if, if something in, in this era, obviously, you know, and I, this is one of the things that uh, that really fascinates me about these eras is because they they do have political structure and they have the the societal structures, what I actually meant to say, and uh, um, the laws and um, whether implemented in the way we might in the modern era. That's not the point. Um, but so if if a murder is discovered, whether poison, bludgeoning or whatever, I mean, what? What process is going to happen? What's going to happen next? Well, I suppose typically you'd inform the, the medjay, the police, and they would investigate, do something to the culprit. But uh, in, in my particular story here, the chief of police is a corrupt figure who has it in for Hani and his family. So they will do anything to avoid it, uh, drawing him into it. But uh, th this is a bit of a, a problem for them, for Hani's family, because... Uh, throughout the series, they've tried to avoid drawing in the police, and yet that's the, the way you would normally go legally. But Hani is, at this point, uh, head of the Foreign Service, and so if there is the involvement of a foreigner, he is given the power to investigate and punish on his own. So that's what happens here. There is a foreigner involved, and so... Uh, he kind of steps in and is able to take over the case legally. Yeah, it's so awesome. And, I, and it, it's a cool, what I really like is how you, you bring in the reality of it with your story characters and then, the, and then you go where you need to go with uh, 
however you want to um, make it happen. I, you know, one of the things that I, I think people get fascinated with these errors is that, you know, how everything from how they got around, whether by foot, uh, barefoot, <laughs> um, got, uh, ox carts, you know, the different, did, did they actually have uh, streets that, you know, were bricked or created out of stone or were they just uh, kind of pathways? Well, in some maybe the processional way, of, say from from temple to temple, where you would have big lavish processions might have been paved, but most streets would not have been. And because it rarely rains in Egypt, you know, mud was not an issue the way it was in some of these northern cultures. So, just the natural packed earth was pretty much uh, the way the streets were constructed. But of course, the main transportation artery was the river. People went everywhere by boat. And that's something that I've tried to feature in my books because it's so distinctively Egyptian. It's it's like a novel set in Venice. I mean, you just go everywhere by boat. I love that. So that's, that's kind of distinctive about them, the river, which didn't even have a name. It was just the river. Nice. The uh, So kind of how long did it, I mean, if they went places, now if you were if you're a common person, did you really go anywhere, or? You know, that's it's. It depends on what you did. I think uh, it uh, depends on what your job was. Let's say, if you were a boatman, you were on the on the go all the time. Or you know, if you had to deliver uh, stones, let's say, or whatever. Uh, people who worked on the uh, royal tombs out in the desert had a workman's village out there near where they were. Um, so they would live there as long as the project was underway. And then from there, they would go every, during the, the work week, they would go up and live even closer to their workstations. You know, they were sort of camping out a good bit of the time, uh, which is because you couldn't just drive to work in half an hour. It was even a short distance was a very long travel time, so had to take that into account. Uh, otherwise, it, they were used to traveling, and they were used to spending long periods of time traveling on foot or by the back of donkeys. Uh, even a chariot, you know, at a at a horse's walking pace is pretty slow. So it's they life was just much slower and much more stretched out. And this is something that I want readers to to get a sense of. And I sometimes I think they find it boring that people spend so much time getting from point A to point B, but that's the way it was. Hey, you know, it's funny. I think about it. Uh, I I live in Metro Atlanta, and uh, in one of the, the suburbs of of, Metro, of Atlanta. And I think nothing about my wife and I think nothing about you know if we want to go. Um, to some fair over here, we pack up the car and we go there. If we want to go, you know, 30 miles this way because we saw something um, that we want to participate in or go do, we, we do it. And, and, you know, we have the ability to just, you know, hop in the car and go. And uh, I, I think it's, this is one of the things that's fascinating to me when you talk about, you know, people not realizing that the life's a little slower than that, especially when, you know, in order to, to get that far, you, you know, you you seriously have some sort of power that's 
<laughs> as opposed to the horsepower of the motor, <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you know, whatever that creature is that's pull, pulling your cart or, uh, or you're walking. And, uh, yeah, exactly. A 30 mile walk is 10 hours geez. and even by <laughs> boat, it's six. So, you know, you just don't go in half an hour like we do. No, that puts it in a lot of perspective too. Cause yeah. it's like, um, 10 hours. Oh my gosh. I, I think about where I could be if I set out for my home and just said, I'm going to go 10 hours that way. You know, it's um, I, I'm multiple States away. So, uh, yeah, exactly. You could be in Canada. <laughs> yes, exactly. So it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty amazing thinking about that. So, so let's, you brought a little bit of this up about the roles of women um, that they play and how, how, even though a contemporary, a, a, a um, you know, one of, her role may be a little bit out there, but uh, very possible and doable that she's a uh, physician and so forth. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about that, about uh, um, those kind of roles that your character is going to run into as well as in reality what's going on? Well, and, uh, Egypt was about the most woman-friendly society of its day. I mean, it was way ahead of most other countries. They had a, a very visible role in society even up to and including rulership. I mean, there were at least a handful of reigning queens, or, or kings, as they would have been called, she-kings. So that's, um, you know, that's a step beyond medieval Europe, for sure. But in addition to that, there were uh, women serving as viziers in the Old Kingdom. Uh, there were women physicians, women uh, priests, uh, some of these roles narrowed over time. So by the New Kingdom, a lot of the high roles played by women in, in earlier times had narrowed down. Uh, but certainly still, the the role of sort of chief of all the musicians in the Temple of Amun, which was an administrative position that, that put the woman in charge of thousands of men and women. So she, you know, essentially was the, the exec, executive of a very large company. And uh, women were mayors, women sat on councils, uh, they, they ran businesses. And I think probably for the most part, the, uh, it was only the, the upper class, the, the leisure class that sat around and, and in their homes and looked beautiful all the time. Uh, most women would be out holding down jobs, helping their families put food on the table. So uh, for good or for ill, they were they were visible and, and very active and were given credit for intelligence and having a soul and some other things that we forgot about for many centuries. Now, if I had to be reborn into the past at some point, I think I would want to be an Egyptian. That, that's awesome. I love that. That's uh, it, it, I appreciate you sharing that information because it is, it, it is. I like the way you said that, uh, that we forgot about or, or uh, lost the, the ability to do along the way, because that is a, uh, um, that is so, uh, um, just so different from many of what's to come and the more recent past. Yeah. Right. Very recent past. And, uh, so it's, uh, um, it, it, it's just fascinating. I think it's interesting for the readers to know that, that that's, uh, you know, is very doable for the time and for the society and, uh, um, for that, to, um, for their roles to, to be such, I think it's cool. Um, so let's real quick before we finish up, cause we're getting close to finishing up. What, 
So talk a little bit about how we know what we know about that, that society. I mean, uh, whether, you know, because you created characters, but at the same time based on some that we do know existed. And we may not may as much detail about them as we hope, but uh, we do know a lot about the society. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, in a word, we know what we know through archaeology. I mean, that's, um, it's mostly through physical findings, and we have some historical accounts, but they were written much later for the most part. It's, it's not like uh, we have any of the, the truly ancient contemporary accounts of these things. I mentioned the Amarna letters, which was a treasure trove of letters that happened to be preserved by fire that give us an insight into what was going on politically for a brief period of time. But other than that, you know, we don't have that sort of document much. So it's mostly through uncovering buildings, uh, working class houses, palaces, uh, aristocratic mansions, uh, tombs that show us furniture. And um, this is, of course, the beauty of Egypt. The climate is such that even organic material is preserved well. So we have we have leather, we have basketry, we have clothing. It's it's just mind-blowing, frankly. I so wish they had this in other parts of the world. Uh, so, you know, we see the actual things that they used every day, and that, that gives you a real insight into how they lived. Uh, we have texts which have been excavated. They're archaeological findings. Literary texts, <clears throat> including something that you might even call novels, uh, which speak about the life of people of various classes. Uh, we have poetry and all sorts of things. And, and the language itself, as we get to know it better, teaches you a lot about the way in which people thought, uh, the distinctions they made, and, and the distinctions they did not make that we do. So it, uh, basically, our knowledge has come up by the shovelful and, and slowly. And it's in, increasing with every year that passes, something new is found. And I, I've sometimes had to correct myself because things have changed since the last book. I this is so it, it it's so cool because I, I I think about you know some of the stuff they could you know the, the thoughts about the the eras and things like this that change with whatever they found or what they they're looking at or um, what they en envision based upon the different stuff that's un uncovered and I just. Uh, I think it's it's a fascinating aspect of this to because you, once again I had to make that comment you have the the two worlds that come together in this type of uh, writing which is awesome so uh, one of the things uh, that I've got to do is we're we're about to finish up and I got a couple writing things that I want to ask you um, how do you get how do you start how do you get past that blank page what's what how do you just get start your writing oh, oh that's the worst question of all. <laughs> I, I usually start with some sort of historical event, or at least that was true in the Haunting series. So that gave me a framework automatically. Uh, it's, it's a little different with this spinoff series because there is less political content and it's, it's more just straightforward, cozy mysteries. So what I've sort of given myself as a task is to take a different a profession, every book, and work around that. So the first book, uh, flowers of evil. The victim was a, a florist, and that allows me to explore the, the profession of temple florist in, in a way. Uh, and think about 
reasons somebody might have wanted to kill a florist. The second book is about weavers. So that, you know, that gives me an entree into their world and the sorts of things that they might be involved in. Uh, the third book I'm working on now is uh, Chariot Makers. And, and so there again, you know, what sort of crime might rise in the, in the world of the chariot maker? So, you know, it just, it just gives me a little place to get started. And, and from there, I'm on my own. That's so cool. I appreciate it. And, and, and this last question goes with this because it's like, you know, one of the things that's really cool is that, I, granted, you, you started, you're more in a scholarly world. And, and eventually that leads you to writing these novels and being in this, this literary world. And, you know, it's, whatever training you've had, you kind of made, you made adjustments to, to fit into this scholarly world and, and successfully. So, I mean, it's, um, you've got multiple works behind you and the, the different directions that you've gone with different characters that you've created. And, and I mean, how'd you, how did you stay focused to, to keep you in this well, uh, in this published author mode where, you know, you're very well published now? Well, I, I, I guess I have a sort of natural intensity once I get into something. I tend to, like Nefret, I tend to jump in with both feet. And and then, you know, once you're in the, the, the mode, uh, it's harder to break out than to stay in. <laughs> so nice. I tend to start working immediately on the next book as soon as I finish one. And um, partly because the research is fresh. But partly because it's just, you know, I guess the adrenaline is flowing. I, I, I love to write. Um, I love to do research, too. So it's and now I, I love my characters. They're old friends with me now. And I want to stay in their world and see what they're up to and uh, let them see. Let me see where they're going to take me next. So I just if I if I ever drew back from it for a long period of time, it might be harder to get back into the swing. But. By staying in focus, it's uh, it's not so bad. That's so cool, and I and I think it's neat that, like you're saying, you want to go back and visit your your characters there and see what they're up to and uh, new stuff. I but I, I appreciate you talking about that because I think that's that's the neatest thing because I would think there would, especially in the beginning, there would be pressures to to kind of not keep going that route or something like that. And um, but uh, thank you so much for uh, for sharing that. I you know. And it's been great talking with you. If someone wanted to connect further with you, where would you send them? Well, I suppose I would send them to my website, which is www.nlholmes.com. I will put that information in the show notes, so it'll be there where it's easy to find. And and, and I just, it's great talking with you again. It was great to have you on the show and sharing about writing, researching, and the Flowers of Evil, book one. And what's funny is I was going to ask you a question about book two, but you got, you're working on book three already, so... Oh, yeah. <laughs> These are short. <laughs> I love that. It's like, oh, my gosh, man. I'm behind the time. So it, uh, good stuff. So, uh, you know, your Hani's Daughter Mystery Series, all the best with it and all these projects you got going on and uh, wishing the best in all you do. Thank you very much. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right. 
The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.